Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. This is a series where we discuss the spiritual and philosophical aspects of tea and the life lessons and wisdom that grow out of such a practice. After all, tea lessons are life lessons. If you'd like to support our cause and keep these podcasts going, then visit globalteahut.org and sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine that covers all aspects of tea from growing, processing, and serving to the history, lore, ethnography, and even the spiritual aspects of the leaf. Every issue also comes with a tin of sustainably produced tea. Global Tea, of course, is also a community growing worldwide with a beautiful app for members that help you learn and grow together as well as join or even host tea events yourself. This podcast is devoted to Cha Dao as a way of life. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, like the different genres, processing methods, science, or brewing methods and brewing tips, then check out our magazine or perhaps our YouTube channel, which is also called Global Tea Hut. There we have tons of videos, including a new brewing tea series where we do cover all the practical aspects of brewing tea. Of course, you can also come visit our free tea center here in Miaoli, Taiwan, Tea Sage Hut, where we offer two 10-day courses every month. Basically, this podcast isn't going to focus so much on the linear aspects of tea, the information about its processing, history, or brewing tips. It's going to focus instead on the life wisdom that comes from such a practice. Welcome to the sixth episode of Life of Tea. The aim of our tradition is awakening and presence through tea. This life and practice is to help cultivate our own inner wisdom and to then share our inner peace with others in the true spirit of tea. Leaves and water offered freely in recognition of the oneness of being and the healing power in commune with nature and each other. Today, we will be discussing what we call the eight bowls of a life of tea. Welcome back to the podcast, Wude. Welcome. So glad to be here. So I had an idea that we should take turns reading each of the eight bowls and then discuss them as we go along. Since this is a big topic, um, I think a good way to do it is uh, discuss the first four, four bowls in this episode and discuss the other half in the next episode. That's a great idea. So we'll talk about the first four in this episode and we'll talk about another four later on. Uh, but before we jump into that, maybe Wude, you could introduce what the eight bowls are. Sure. Um, well, the eight bowls, calling it eight bowls is kind of arbitrary. It's an arbitrary decision that I made just for uh, as a poetic device. But these are the eight ways that we practice here in our tradition. These are the eight ways that we uh, live a life of tea, the things that we, that we cultivate and do. Um, and... In the introduction to the pamphlet that we have here at the center on the eight bowls, it says that each of the eight bowls has the other seven in it, like the diamonds of Indra that reflect all the other uh, diamonds in the net of, of Indra. Um, so really, the sepa separation of these practices is also arbitrary. They're all one practice. They're all one life. They're all an aspect of living a life of tea. But for the purpose of learning and growing and communication, of course, it's helpful to have them articulated, to have them uh, discussed and, and written about. And so we, you know, we use this device of eight bowls or eight aspects of practice. But really, these are all much more important in their living form as we practice them throughout the day. 
and this is a big part of what makes tea a practice is when it goes into becoming life above my bed there's calligraphy and uh, it says in every step and every breath from the moment i wake until the moment i sleep i am preparing tea uh, the great swordsman musashi said that uh, you know the the art of of swordsmanship the art of bushido is not just uh, when you're holding your wooden sword or marching around the dojo or sparring or practicing, but when you sleep, when you eat, when you wake up, when you walk, that's all swordsmanship. And the same for tea. Tea is uh, all that we do all day. And so these are the aspects of our life in, in this tradition and the things that we practice. Though it's really important to also uh, d discriminate and distinguish the fact that these uh, this list and these concepts are not the practice themselves. And when it is actually being lived, when you're actually doing these things on a daily basis, of course, uh, they're not like separate. It's not like you're stopping each day and thinking like, okay, now I'm doing the third bowl or now I'm doing the fourth bowl or even calling them bowls at all. Obviously, using the metaphor of a bowl is just, is just as I said, a poetic device. So, Though it's good to have discussions about them and have this, uh, you know, kind of like sutra where we talk through the, the all eight of them and we can read from it and discuss. This is beautiful. It helps uh, people to learn and grow and understand our tradition and what we're practicing as well. But at the same time, these things have to be lived and in their living form is where the real transformative power is, not in the conceptual knowledge or understanding of uh, of them. Right. So. Uh, questions about practice are not as valuable as questions that come from within practice. As a teacher, uh, these last uh, like 10, 12 years, I, I've very distinctly learned to separate these two kinds of questions in students. A lot of students bring questions about practice, uh, the philosophies of practice or, or, or uh, even criticism of practice, all from outside, from standing outside of practice. And uh, like my teachers before me, because I did that too, I think it's common. Uh, I certainly asked those kinds of questions. Sometimes they were dismissed. Sometimes I get the Zen uh, nonsense as an answer. Um, sometimes I got no answer, which is an answer because it means wrong question. But now as a teacher myself, I understand a lot more and more deeply um, that the questions that turn me on as a teacher that excite me, that make me want to show up in my role as teacher. They're questions that come from within practice, from, from within the doing of the practice, from within the living of the practice. And you're doing the practice and, you're, and you come across something, right? As opposed to standing outside of the practice and asking questions about it mm. or about some general philosophy. So I think that point is very relevant to these eight bowls it's very important that the uh, that the discussion be like a, a finger pointing at the moon, that you follow the sign and that you more uh, live these eight things and, and then it, it begin to experience them. They have experiential alchemy. Hmm. Yeah, so let's discuss them. Well, um, would you mind reading the first bowl? Yeah. <clears throat> so the first bowl is... Uh, Skillful means moral uprightness. So this is what's called shila in, in Buddhism. 
Rather than speaking in right and wrong, involving judgment and rank, let us define morality in terms of that which is skillful, wholesome and healthy. We are what we do, and the way we treat ourselves and others affects our tea. We should consequently honor life and not kill, avoid greed and desire with a love of freedom from material possession. We know that our actions, words, and most importantly, thoughts towards others and our ourselves affect our ability to live li a life of tea in every way. Rather than formalizing a moral code of conduct, we practice self-effacement and recognition of the true oneness of all being. From such an awareness comes true love and compassion, and in that state, all conduct is pure conduct. In that way, we walk with heads held high. Knowing oneness, there is no opportunity to behave unskillfully. Life flows like tea, from empty vessel to empty vessel. Love and do what thy will shall be the whole of the law. Which, uh, that last part is from St. Augustine. So uh, this is, you know, of course, this is a, a tradition of Zen and tea, so this is very much based on Zen Buddhism and on the, the, the ideas of Shila, which are sometimes translated as morality, but uh, the Western concept of morality has a bunch of rules and regulations and thou shalts that hang over your head. Um, even the idea of sin itself is not an Eastern one. So uh, the Buddha spoke much more often in terms of skillful behavior, wholesome behavior, healthy behavior. So in, d in order to determine what is a right code of conduct, one must first have a direction. So uh, if you want to go from L.A. to San Francisco, if you're trying to get to San Francisco, going south is not wrong, it's just unskillful. Uh, so when we say it's the wrong direction, we don't mean that it's a great sin, but that you're heading in the wrong direction towards your own destination. So, uh, you know, how we treat others and, and how we treat ourselves, and that includes our speech, that includes our action, that includes our, our thoughts as well. And the Buddha included the thoughts, right? So even um, having transgressive thoughts is already set you on the wrong path. And it's just a matter of degree. If you're thinking violent thoughts, certainly you are... Uh, your transgression is a lot less than someone who's acting on those thoughts, but you've still transgressed. It's just a matter of degree. Mm. So, uh, skillful, skillful behavior is, includes thoughts, it includes um, action and speech, and and this is why it's so important f for us to purify our minds so that we can have more control over our thoughts, more distance from them, more space, and the freedom to not be tyrannized by them. And we. Uh, we learn from this. One of our teachers always says that in order to learn to make tea, we must first learn how to be people. So um, how, certainly how we treat others and how we treat ourselves uh, will influence our ability to make tea. And, and you know, one of the beautiful things about my lineage of Zen, I, I've never seen it in other lineages of Buddhism, though it certainly might be out there in the world, but it's something anyway that I'm very proud of is that our, uh, the 10 grave precepts, the 10 basic precepts that we follow as Zen Buddhists, in my tradition, usually they're just abstentions, right? I shall not kill, I shall not steal, stuff like that. But in our tradition, they all start with positives, which is really beautiful. So they're out of something positive, like I, you know, the, the uh, um, I don't misuse sexuality is one of them, right? Or I don't use intoxicants is another. And those are usually just given in that way. But in, in my tradition, it's uh, I honor the body, therefore I don't misuse sexuality. I love clarity of mind, therefore I abstain from intoxicants. So I love that um, 
the depth and power of starting with something positive, hmm. especially as a Western person who grew up with a kind of, you know, the senses of guilt and shame and thou shalt not um, kind of attitude. And this is coming from the opposite direction because I love clarity of mind because I'm trying to cultivate clarity of mind because I'm trying to get to San Francisco. In other words, I want to go North from LA. Mm-hmm. So because I'm trying to cultivate clarity of mind, because I love clarity of mind, because that's the aim, you know, one of the, great values and aims of my life I, I abstain from intoxicants so it avoids the whole uh, debate of whether intoxicants are wrong or uh, evil or or heavy or in any way um, and just uh, says you know if, if you want to go to san francisco from la head north same thing i honor my body i honor the body i honor all bodies so i abstain from misusing sexuality um so these these basic kinds of things that you know come out of positive i think it just is so much more alchemical and helps shift us but having upright behavior uh, being an upright person um, being a person of integrity and uh, and working not just on your action and your speech but also on your thoughts that's the hard one right and none of us will ever be perfect at any of this we are just going to make progress and work. And sometimes we fall unconscious and our behavior is, is uh, other than it should be. <laughs> but uh, but a, a, a man of tea, a cha jin, should be an upright person. Mm-hmm. So with the big things, it's easy to see like what the skillful thing or the right thing to do would be. But there's a lot of gray areas in life as well. Do you have any, any suggestions how to um, deal with those? Yeah, I mean, that's why no code of conduct. That's why the Buddha, um, he didn't give lists uh, for these things. He didn't say, do this, 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 and don't do this, this, this. It was just like, you know, don't kill. But that's impossible. Every breath you take kills, you know, tons of organisms. Everything you eat kills. And, you know, just because you're vegan or vegetarian, and I certainly am those things, don't think that that means that there's not sacrifice and death for you to live. It's a very grave misunderstanding to assume that Mother Earth values her animal children more than her plant children. It's not true. There's always sacrifice. And that's a danger of being vegan is that you can think that you're like above sacrifice, that beings aren't dying for you to live. Of course they are. So, uh, you know, a lot of this starts, though, in the being. It starts in understanding like that uh, the Buddha spoke about the fact that you suffer before you act even. And, and, you know, when I first heard that, I thought that was kind of absurd. But the more you meditate and the more sensitive you become uh, and the more you purify your mind and quiet down in space there is, you actually see that, you know, when the desire to, like, even kill a mosquito comes, before before you actually strike, you're already kind of burning. You're already suffering. You're already uh, uncomfortable. You've lost the balance of your mind. Nobody reaches out from a balanced, harmonious, peaceful state and kills life takes life Hmm. so you know but this is but it's complicated right easy to have compassion on the cows or the pigs more difficult to have compassion on the humans that truck them around or work in the slaughterhouses but they deserve compassion too if you can give compassion to those beings who are dying in the slaughterhouse then you're capable of being compassionate to those that work there who are also suffering and also what a terrible job just on a practical level just let let all the spiritual stuff go. Let all the Zen stuff go. Let all the whatever uh, talks of cause and effect or 
anything like that. Release all that and just think of it on a practical level, on a day-to-day level, all the blood and stink and rats and bugs and just the nastiness of working in such a place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you realize that uh, that person will become numb, of course. They have to, to do that, like many such jobs. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of gray areas. And so I think one of the important things that we all need to stop doing is stop creating an idea of the Buddha. Stop creating an idea of compassion or of what spirituality is and then trying to force yourself into that mold. It will never work. Forcing yourself into that mold, you'll be like the nutty professor movies where you're like your fat self is coming out like he keeps coming out of his other form you know you can't hold yourself in that mold and that mold's not real right so you've created an idea of what a spiritual person is and then you've tried it you're trying to force yourself into that mold and you know talk like this this is how spiritual people talk but that's not how buddhas talk that's not how people talk um and so get rid of an idea of the Buddha. And Zen, we say, if you see the Buddha come and kill him, it means that get rid of that idea of, of the Buddha, get rid of that idea of the, of, of what, what should be, uh, that, that saying kill the Buddha has other meanings. It also means that the Buddha that's outside of you is not the Buddha. So only a Buddha can meet a Buddha. So you have to see with the Buddha from, from within, not from without. But in this instance, we can think of it to, to mean that to kill the idea that there is a way to be uh, because Buddhas don't show up that way they show up without doctrine they show up in every moment completely free of doctrine which means of course philosophical and religious doctrine but also past conditioning that kind of doctrine assumptions about the situation and what it is right because situations are always more complicated than you understand and when you show up empty then you can really respond you can really be of assistance you can know how to behave so you, you know how to behave from inside, and, and, the, and it comes from being having space. A living mind needs space. If a mind is full, it's, 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 there's a death to it, a frozenness to it. So you have to be unblocked, frozen, um, rigid things. And learn to hear your intuition. Because we all have intuition, and it's all connected to the, the love and, and awareness and light that's deep inside of us. The problem is that we also have a tremendous amount of habit energy. And a lot of that habit energy isn't e- even our own. It's, it's humanity. It's beginningless. It goes back to thousands of years ago. Dudes were bashing each other's heads in. And we carry all that weight. We carry all that um, with us as well. And so when we have some intuitive impulse, we have some intuition, it's followed immediately by a tremendous amount of habit energy. And because it follow, the habit energy follows on the heels of the intuition so quickly, it can sometimes be very difficult to discriminate them. I can't tell you how many times as a teacher I've noticed in people, uh, especially those you know, starting their journey, where they, they, they say they're following their heart or they're following their inner voice or they're following their calling. But what they're really following is their egoic habit energy because they're not able to discriminate those two. They're not able to uh, separate those two uh, because one follows on the heels of the other one so quickly. Mm-hmm. So how do you separate between the two? Well, you, you have to, you have to t- there's two things. First, uh, I'll tell them in the opposite order because I think the, sec- the first one is actually a segue into our next, into the second bowl. 
but ordinarily I would tell this one, I would tell them in the reverse order. Um, but um, so one is the, the, the precepts, having precepts, having a tradition that has offered you some kind of code of conduct, right? So we have precepts that we, that we can always rely on like a backbone. They're there for us all the time. So I have my 10 precepts, and whenever I don't know what to do, I just, I just go to the precepts because I've taken the precepts. I've taken them formally in the form of vows. So I just, when I, when I don't know, when I can't separate intuition from egoic habit energy from sankharas, I just, I just follow my precepts. That's usually the second. The first, then, is, of course, a meditation practice because with a meditation practice, we still our mind... Uh, we we actually you know things in a way slow down, but it's it's not really that they've slowed down; it's that you've slowed down, and so you your perception is more subtle and refined. And the more sensitive you become, and the more space there is inside of you, the easier it is to distinguish the frequency of what is an actual to intuition and what is a an impulse, some kind of habit energy, right? And so you're not following impulses, and and even worse, following impulses and thinking that those impulses are your like true voice or your heart when when actually they're not so that segues to the next one because the next the second bowl is is the mastered mind meditation so um but ordinarily i would i would suggest those two things in the opposite order i would say you know me meditation is paramount learning how to distinguish yourself between your intuition and uh, those impulses and then second when that fails re rely on your precepts mm. mm -hmm. so we can st we you can read the second one. Mastered mind meditation is the second bowl. Mm -hmm. Without mastery of the mind, we shall never walk upright, no matter how wonderful our intentions. The mind is a strong and powerful elephant, able to serve or destroy the city equally. For that reason, our centers and schools will always be places of meditation, just as the life of tea in this tradition will include morning and evening meditation sessions framing each day in peace and centeredness. Also, periodic retreats of longer duration should be held in the life of a tea wayfarer. Just as we need to plunge the deeper into the healing waters of silence every day, we also need a deeper draught now and again to balance periods of activity with stillness, doing with being. Our minds are turbid waters, and only quiet stillness can bring the clarity we seek in a life of tea. Connection between the kettle, pot, and cups is completed in their emptiness, which they all share. The emptiness in the vessel is what makes it useful, connecting it to the other vessels. Like that, all great tea comes out of the meditative mind. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. Um, one of the things I've ex experientially learned staying here at the tea sage hut is the importance of meditation daily meditation practice and like i've heard you say so many times that um, making space for meditation is the primary meditation so before coming here i had a meditation practice but my meditation practice was you know you could say that there's like an aim or goal attached to it like i i wanted to achieve something sitting on the on the cushion and um and the what i wanted to achieve was stillness and you know peace of mind and clarity which is all fine and good but then you know sometimes i would sit there and my mind wouldn't be clear and and i would try to make it clear somehow and uh that had the opposite effect i i became more um out of balance and 
and more um, more anxious, you could say. Um, but then sitting these morning and evening meditations every day here at the Tea Sage Hut has made me realize that you, the real goal is to just sit there and be and um, and let whatever comes to you and observe that and um, have the practice be aimless. There, there shouldn't really be a goal, um, like a specific goal attached to meditation. Hmm. Yes, Zazen should not have a goal. It's a very, very, very unskillful habit and uh, break it immediately to evaluate meditation. The only way to fail at meditation is to get off the cushion. As long as you're on the seat, anything is okay. It's about cultivating... Uh, cultivating awareness and observation and calmness and allowing the flow to happen. It's not about bliss. There is no bad meditation. In fact, even if you force me into a corner and force me to evaluate meditation sessions, right? As a Zen teacher, I will tell you that a session full of storms, full of emotions and thoughts would be better than a peaceful, blissful one. Anyone can meditate when they're at peace and blissful. But to be able to hold the posture of a Buddha while there are storms raging inside of you, to contain that, to have the space for it, around it, to observe it and let it flow by. If you forced me, I would say that's a, that's a better meditation session. You learn more from it. You grow more from it. You gain more from it. Um, however, I would not evaluate. Let go of that. Just sit on the cushion. You're awake. You're alert. You're, you're, you're observing. And you're also calm. You're letting the flow happen, and the flow can be anything, right? When I was a beginner, of course, I went to my teachers and wanted to discuss the content of my meditations. And then I saw this, and then this happened, and then I saw this, and then and my teacher would just, you know, either dismiss me by saying maka, which just means like illusion, the illusion of the mind. Or if he was in a patient mood, he would listen, 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 and then look at me with like almost sleepy eyes, like bored with everything I'm saying, and then he would kind of like almost yawn and say, yep. That's the content of your zazen. And it was always like that. Like, I was very excited. Like, oh, I had this experience and this experience, and I'm super excited to tell you about it. And then he was like, oh, yep, that's the content of your zazen. <laughs> like, just uh, always that a answer. So uh, there's there, the content doesn't matter. It's not important, and stop evaluating. But I think it's very important to take a step back um, because we're passing over something really important with this bowl. And... Uh, which, you know, let me say this emphatically, as a teacher of this lineage, as an authority figure in this lineage, let me say it as clear as night and day for all of you listeners. If you are not meditating morning and evening, you are not practicing tea in this tradition. Full stop. If you are not sitting zazen morning and evening, along with uh, regular retreats in your life, I would, I would suggest annual. Um, and there is no way around this meditation is tea and tea is meditation meditation is zen and zen and tea are one flavor zen comes from the chinese word chan which is a translation of the sanskrit dhyana which means the meditative mind the meditative mind makes great tea so um you know one of the most powerful experiments one can do in tea is to have same teaware same water same tea and switch brewers mid-session and you will be astounded by how different the tea becomes when the brewer is switched. Right? So the mind is very much in the tea. And this is why tea has sat between teachers and students in every single lineage from mathematics to Taoism to Confucianism to Buddhism to shamanism in China 
and in most of Asia for thousands of years. Because what could be more powerful poetically, metaphorically, and also literally than the teacher putting their mind into a bowl that the student then consumes? Mm. And it's nonverbal, and it's a, there's a transmission there. And it goes the other way, too. In all, every lineage in, in China, including weddings, and including like a math teacher or a scholar or a teacher of calligraphy, right? The student makes a bowl of tea and hands it to the teacher. And the, when the teacher drinks that tea, it's a drinking of the student into the lineage. That's usually how it worked. That's how it worked for me in martial arts when I was a kid. Uh, my first experience of tea was making tea for, for my teacher and his teacher to like be accepted into the school. Mm -hmm. um, so those were my first experiences of tea. So tea is is uh, is a reflection of the mind that's making it, and that that it has to come out of stillness, and that stillness needs to be cultivated. It needs to be practiced. There needs to be space for it. We need to sit. Sitting is the practice. Sitting meditation is 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 tea, and uh, they must flow in and out of each other. So a life of tea includes morning and evening meditation, and that is essential. There's no. Uh, there's no excuse. There's no way around it. There's no. There's not a day. There's not a reason. And uh, if you want to make this a part of your life, as you said, making space for meditation is is the primary meditation. So we focus far too much energy on questions, as I said earlier, about practice. How do I meditate? What do I do? All that stuff doesn't matter, right? When you you know, Dogen who's the one of the patriarchs of my lineage he said when you when when you arrive to the space practice begins and this means that when you sit on the cushion practice begins doesn't matter what's arising that's your practice and so when you're on the cushion it's it's whatever whichever wherever doesn't matter what arises where we need to concert more of our efforts is in making the space for meditation that means both physical space if you have a corner of your house or room where you only practice meditation, that's all you do there, just like having a tea space, it, that is powerful because when that space will, you will find, I know this sounds kind of foo-foo, but you will actually find that it gets charged. And so that as you sit there, you know, it will help you, it will hold you up. And second, as you walk by it every day, you have this glaring reminder that I still need to meditate, right? Same with tea, having a tea space. You, you walk by and you're like, oh, I want to drink some tea. Hmm. And that space gets charged with the energy of tea. So having a meditation practice, if, if you want to start with just a few minutes, morning and evening, that's fine. I, I didn't put a time. Uh, for us here at the center, we do an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. You want to work towards that goal. Um, if you really want to dive in, you know, take a, one of the perfections of Buddhism is what we call aditan, is strong determination. Determination is one of the three pillars of Zen. Very important. So take a strong determination and... Uh, you, you know, you just say, I'm going to meditate two, hour, two hours a day, or if, if it's for you, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. I'm not putting any time, but choose a time, make a determination, and go one or two years without missing any. Even if you're bobbing and you're asleep because you've just arrived on a plane, don't make any excuses. Just do it. If you can survive a year of doing that, if you can make it through a year of doing that, you'll do it for the rest of your life. It's a bit like anything. It's a bit like exercise. Right. Once you get to the gym, you know what to do. Sure, there's some science of which machines to use and how to use them. And you learn that as you go. But really, more of the effort is getting to the gym. Once I get to the gym, I know what to do. I put on some headphones, put on some rock and roll and start exercising. Uh, it's more getting to the gym that's the issue, making space for exercise. And same thing. You take a strong determination. You start exercising a few times a week or every day, however much is healthy for you. And then over after about you know six months or a year of doing it, you st you couldn't imagine living without it. It just becomes a part of your life, and you start to enjoy it. It stops being a chore, 
meditation stops being something you have to do and it starts just becoming part of the flow of, of the day right so let's let's just you know stamp that out there officially right from the teacher to you if you're not practicing meditation morning and evening you're not practicing tea in this lineage so uh make sure that that's a part of your days and and keep that strong determination and if you do that for a year or two every day without fail it'll stick to you it'll just become part of your energy and you'll it'll just uh, it'll just be a part of life mm -hmm. so um one follow-up question does the technique matter like what technique of meditation one practices um at this stage i'm gonna say no um i'm just happy with you know with students who are who are meditating morning and evening and, and say no it doesn't matter um some like it's like you know when you first start going to the gym does it really matter if you're doing all cardio or some cardio and weights or some calisthenics or you know no it's just it's really great that you're going to the gym and i don't want anything in the gym to scare you or get you to a place where like you you then as a result don't go to the gym or get confused about going to the gym so you know when you start out just just meditate and um i you know i suggest simple practices like following your breath Anapana. We have some meditation instructions um, in the, I think, in the the Qigong and Tea discourses that are on Bandcamp, if people are interested. We've also um, sent them out, I think, with Global Tea Hut before as a gift. So, um, you know, and that technique is called Anapana, which on a inhalation and exhalation is just observing the breath. That's a very simple one. But uh, whatever meditation is working for you, um, you know, keep keep it going, and and you know that the discussions of of the um, types of meditation and which ones I found to be more helpful, um, the techniques of meditation in our tradition are what called the five star technique. So there's five kind of legs to it or points to it, and that's what we learn around here. Though most students actually usually just learn the first one, which is breathing, but uh, in my tradition is that. Um, and and you know but i'd rather stay open with it i think you know almost every meditation technique is good and they all kind of focus on the same basic premise right of of being calm and being awake being alert and observe it, observing but also letting the flow happen and so um, any technique that's helping you achieve that kind of mind it's uh, beautiful and and just you know focus on what you said earlier not evaluating meditation practice there is no good or bad meditation the only bad meditation is the one you didn't do uh, there's no such thing even if you're just sitting there and the only thing you can do is posture that's it you can just hold the posture that's it what a beautiful thing when a raging storm of emotion of anger or lust or emotional pain or sadness something that would have driven you to to do un unwholesome action before to yourself or to others. And here you are just sitting through it, holding it, making space for it, allowing it to rise and pass on its own, to flow by. That's incredibly powerful. So the, there's the goal of, of meditation is not some kind of blank state or mindlessness or bliss or whatever it is, because you know we are human beings. And even if you achieve some, some what are called jhanas, these jhanas are like states of absorption and you achieve some state of absorption, it could be that as a result of s achieving that state of absorption, a storm arises. That you have a, a breakthrough, and as a result, boom, here comes the storm. So 
these things will always come and go. And uh, we just let the flow happen. If the flow is bliss, it's bliss. If the flow is um, you know, sadness or anger or whatever emotion, that's what it is. If it's thoughts and, and a torrent of thoughts, then that's what flows by. Whatever it is, there's the, the practice is just a container. So um, any form of meditation is great. And so well, at this stage, especially. Mm -hmm. So let's move on. Yes, let's move on to the third ball, which is humility and gratitude, study, contemplation, and prayer. So here's what it says. All liturgies are in truth consummation and proclamation of a state of being, making the invisible become visible on the physical level. We make altars to our own inner truths. Bowing to the Buddha, I bow to awakening and stillness in me. I learn humility from before the divinity in me and then begin to learn from the wisdom of those people, places, and things which surround me. Daily prayer and contemplation complement my meditation and tea, as does academic study of inspirations of masters past and present. For in their words, I find the maps to my truths, as well as the words and ways I'll need in order to articulate my experience, strength, and hope to others. In study, we do not seek to ape the ways of any saint, sage, or seer, but rather to find inspiration and guidance in our own quest to know ourselves. In prayer, we do not seek to petition the divine with our desires, but to recognize outwardly our own most truths. We seek to create a space that is sacred in our lives and that is always there to remind us of our true faces. Surrounded by flowers, fruit, incense, tea, and light, we remember and make ceremony of the fact that we are Mother Earth, we are suffering and forgiveness, we are Buddha nature. Proper prayer is for forgiveness or out of gratitude for the endless blessings each and every one of us is showered with daily. Prayer is for loving kindness and the sharing of our merits as we follow this spiritual path. And prayer is to ask the divine, our higher self, for knowledge of the divine will and the power to carry it out. We ask that the divine will, not our own, unfold in our inner connection to the Tao. And having seen this path, we ask for the acceptance and courage to walk it. Tea is prepared with mastery only when it prepares itself. As in life, we must step out of the way and let the current flow through us the way the tea flows through the pots and cups. So this also is, a, earlier we talked about how to know the right and wrong. And I gave the two advice, um, the two types of advice. One is which you meditate and develop sensitivity and learn to discriminate between intuit, intuition and, and impulses or habit energy from yourself or, or from humanity because we carry the habits of Of our of our DNA of our lineage of, of humanity itself and uh, then we talked about when that doesn't work relying on precepts the precepts of your tradition are powerful tools that you can lean back against and wield and use to help guide your behavior and the third method also is of course praying praying for the knowledge of of, uh, of what is right and for the power to carry it out because it, you know it always comes down to one of those two things all problems are one of those two things they're yin or yang they're You lack the structure or you lack the energy. So you don't know what to do or you do know what to do and you lack the courage. So we need both of those. We need to know the, the divine will and we need the courage to, to carry it out. And, uh, you know, I think even the most cursory survey of human history and prehistory throughout the last 100,000 years demonstrates so clearly our need for connection to sacred for ceremony for prayer and i don't know that because i studied history also i did do that but i also know it experientially because i've lived a life without daily prayer and i've lived one with it 
And um, the fact is that we need help. That there's only so far I can go with my own will, with my own power. And I need to, I need to seek help. I also create altars and surround them with fruit and flour and incense and tea um, to remind myself of my true self. So in part, I pray for, as, a re as a reminder. In part, I pray uh, for knowledge of what's right and the courage to carry it out. In part, I pray, I pray for help from any force greater than me, even love. Love is greater than me. Anything greater than me can come and help me because I'm not always capable of doing it on my own. And when you do make that practice of prayer, the miracle is that those forces do come and, and help you. And then I also pray for its own sake. You don't have to go for a run because you have a destination. You go for a run because it's healthy for you. I don't care. It's moot to me. I pray to Guan Yin. And it's moot to me whether Guan Yin is real or not. It's a moot question, a pointless question. Guan Yin's a Buddhist. If she was here, she would both agree and disagree that she exists. So whether she exists or not doesn't matter. I pray for the sake of praying. Just like we were talking about sitting earlier for the sake of sitting, as opposed to having a goal or evaluating it. I don't pray to get something. As it said in there, we don't make petitionary prayers. I'm not asking for things. Asking for things is dangerous because you don't really know what's good for you. When you say, oh, I want a lot of money. Do you really? Is that really good? A lot of people that win the lotto later regret it. They get divorced. They, it causes problems. Maybe it would be good for you. Maybe not. But it's hard to see all the angles of cause and effect and what would happen. It's hard to know what's good. It's better to rest in a place of treating all experience as grist for the mill, all experience as beautiful, all experience as growth, as opportunity. This is my practice, whatever this is. Um, and, and instead of struggling and striving to get things. And so I avoid petitionary prayers with one exception, which is for healing of myself and others. And for the knowledge of what is right and the power to carry it out. Those are kind of the only petitionary prayers I make. But mostly the prayers I make are the ones that were discussed in here. Prayers of loving kindness, which we call metta, which means sharing our merits, sharing the benefits of our practice. If we do achieve any kind of peace, we share it. This is a tradition of service. So we're trying to serve uh, and share the merits of our meditation. Every day here at the center, I said we practice meditation hour in the morning, hour in the evening. Actually, we do 50 minutes morning and evening, and the final 10 minutes are this metta these prayers of love and sharing our practice with others, sharing our peace with all beings. Of course, gratitude is a wonderful prayer. Gratitude is learning to say yes to the way things are, to, to begin to recognize all the infinite blessings that are showered on you every day and your connection to those blessings. And you, you just take so much for granted. And taking all that stuff for granted means you're not living a fulfilled life. So that practice of prayer also teaches us gratitude. So these are some of the proper prayers, loving kindness, gratitude, praying for forgiveness, forgiveness for ourselves and giving forgiveness to others because it is only in forgiving that you will be forgiven. That's the only door to be forgiven is to forgive. And so um, through that, through these practices every day, incorporating an altar into your life is, is a very, very powerful tool for its own sake. So for me, uh, the existence or non-existence of Guan Yin is moot. I pray for, for the sake of praying, mostly. And then I pray also for the knowledge of what to do and the power to carry it out. And I pray for help. 
I don't care which human you are in which corner of the world. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how strong you think you are. You cannot survive without help. You don't make all your own clothes. You don't grow all your own food. You at least require the help of other human beings to live. There's no such thing as complete self-reliance. Other beings have to die for us to live. We talked about that. Even if you're vegan, plants are sacrificing themselves for you to live. Are you grateful of that? Are you honoring that? You need help. We're all in this together. And we and there are forces bigger than you. Of course there are. You're a pebble in a giant beach. You're a grain of sand in the Ganges. There are powers infinitely more vast and, and, and great than you, including love, including compassion, including the possibility of other uh, ethereal or disembodied beings that are bodhisattvas and things that are interested in helping you. But just the act, again, it doesn't, you don't have to, in, from the Zen perspective, it doesn't even matter if those beings are there. The act of calling out changes you. And I invite you to give it a shot. If you're not praying every day, again, you're not practicing in this lineage. This is how we practice. Prayers are important. Prayers are a very important part of every day for me. Um, knocking my head to the ground also. That's another part of prayers. The humility that comes as a result. Looking up to something makes you humble. And humility is another powerful byproduct of, of a da daily prayer. And then the contemplation part. Of course, we have to study. We have to learn. Um, we have to learn from, from, our, from those who have come before, from the saints and sages and their wisdom that they've left behind. It's foolish not to read their, their, their maps, their mind. We have to study tea too. When you serve tea, people afterwards are going to ask questions. You need linear information. You need to understand what oolong tea is and how it's made, liobao tea, etc. You need to be able to answer questions. A chajin should understand tea intellectually. With the whole being. That means the mind, the heart, the spirit, all of it. The body. Um, and these things aren't separate anyway. So we have to study. We study tea. Uh, we study sutras. We study the teachings of sages in any tradition. There's wisdom in any tradition. And you can find your doorway through any tradition. They are all doorways to the same room. So by studying wise men of the past, we, we, we learn and grow. And, and not only do we learn and grow, we become inspired like if you're in your you know, first year and you're struggling with that commitment to meditate every morning and evening or to pray every day, reading the wisdom of those who have come before us will inspire you. It'll make you ready to go another day to get up. So it will inspire you. It will help guide you because there's the wisdom of, of you know, people going back thousands of years that have lived and died and suffered and passed through and down this path. And they've passed all the way through every facet of the path and through the final gate, like the Buddha. And these types of people offer us guidance. Right? They offer us guidance no matter what obstacle we're facing. Somebody has faced it, and we can learn the tools to, to get through and the guidance to get through and the inspiration to go forward. And then we, and then we can also uh, learn ways and means, as it says, of sharing with others. We can absorb these teachings, reflect on them, and then reflect them back to others, help share them, and, and guide others through our own actions and, and also through our speech and, and the concepts and the maps that have been left behind by the sages of the past. So we find guidance, we find inspiration, 
right? And we find uh, a way of also transmitting and sharing and continuing the traditions in this way. So it's very important to study what's come before, not to ape it, but to learn from it. Sometimes you, what you learn from it is to not do that, to change, to evolve. Other times you learn to uh, that it is the, the method that was um, that the past masters followed is the is the way that you also should follow, and uh, then you're relying on accumulated wisdom and power as opposed to yourself, which is you're too limited, right? We're all here because of our ancestors and the DNA that they've passed on, and the light in that DNA. So same thing with the wisdom of the masters. They need we have to study them, we have to understand and, and contemplate and think. Right, meditate. A life of meditation, a life of spiritual practice, isn't just blanking out like a zombie. There has to be philosophy. There has to be thought. We have to use our rational mind. The rational mind is a gift. It's a huge part of who we are. I see far too many spiritual people getting off keel, and because they willingly surrender and give up one of the most powerful compasses, God-given compasses, which is your rational, logical mind, which is. And then, you know, oftentimes rejecting or pushing against one of the greatest tools for observation of this world and ourselves that we've created, which is the scientific method and all that it creates and, and all of the wisdom and knowledge that also is, comes through that needs to be explored and, and utilized. Um, so don't neglect the rational mind. Don't neglect contemplation and thinking and, uh, and you know, or think that Buddhism is about anti-thinking. Certainly not. Uh, having a solid philosophy and continuing to question it and grow intellectually in understanding and knowledge is a huge part of this path. Mm -hmm. The more I stay here at the TCH hut, the more I realize the importance of um, you know prayer, contemplation, and, and study as well, and and also the balance between, like you said, the the scientific method, the the rational mind, and also the you know the magic. Um, or the spiritual part of life as well. There needs to be balance. So on to the next bowl, which is cleanliness and purity. Mm -hmm. Reverence and purity facilitate a life of tea and the communication of peace and wisdom through tea. Purity functions on all levels, from the body to the tea room, the spirit and the mind. We must respect the space and beingness all around us keeping our homes and especially our tea spaces clean and bright so that all who come within them, including the many aspects of ourselves, will find stillness here. Even a confused or cluttered mind will find peace and cleanliness here, especially if that cluttered mind is my own. There is a profound peace in the practice of carefully laying out all your utensils for tea and looking at them over in a few minutes of meditation before you even begin. And like all truths, the tea session should leave no trace of itself. All should be cleaned thoroughly after the tea has been served and the guests departed. This applies equally to the inner level, as one should not carry around the dregs of previous sessions which only give rise to the comparative mind and prevent you from connecting to this moment. Wash away all traces of a tea when it is done. Clean thoroughly, internally and externally, so that your guests will know that there is but one encounter one chance. In that way, true presence and connection have room to grow in your life and tea. Mm, beautiful. So, you know, this one 
is a very very powerful one and and it's an understanding that you know transcending the separation between the physical and the spiritual this is these ideas are are silly there's a lot of uh you know people that think that the spirit's more important and we're just spirits in body and all the spiritual stuff is important and the physical isn't and uh that will be a very inadequate philosophy for navigating a human life and then there's the opposite side where there's gross materialism and the idea that we're just like secretions and atoms bouncing around and a bunch of stuff and chemicals and that's also very inadequate for our experience and and uh, for navigating a human life and the truth transcends both of these so get away from the idea of like you know church for the spirit body for the doctor mind for the psychologist and any kind of separation when you're when you're sick physically it's not like that's a purely physical phenomenon it doesn't affect your spirit or mind of course it does when you're sick your mind and spirit are also sick and vice versa when people pass through great psychological trauma it often manifests as cancer or other physical problems as well so these are connected. So your physical space is your practice. Stop thinking like, oh, my practice is, is just m spiritual. And so the physical doesn't matter. And I can be a mess. It's not true. If you're going to be upright in spirit, you need to be upright in body. If you're going to be upright in body, you need to be upright in spirit. One or the other is neither is imbalanced and unhealthy. So the cleanliness of your space is paramount. This is why in Zen monasteries so much time every day is spent cleaning. Because a clean, empty space creates a clean, empty mind. The space is manifest out of the mind and then encourages the mind. It's a cycle. If a cluttered space comes out of a cluttered mind, and then it encourages the mind to be more cluttered. When you come home and the dishes are in the sink and there's a mess in the kitchen, you might also be reminded of the email you have to sell, send Tom and the other cluttered that is that is also left to do, not just cleaning. So a cluttered space encourages a cluttered mind. And if I asked you to contemplate a peaceful space, you will think of an empty beach or a windswept field. You'll think of a space that's clean and empty. And our tea space especially should be that. Our altars should especially be that. What does it say about my relationship to the divine if my altar's all dusty and dirty and covered with dead flowers? What does it say of my practice in tea, if my teaware is all dirty and I leave leaves in it and leave the same stuff sitting on the table and don't clean up afterwards and don't clean up beforehand. What does it say about that practice? It says the practice is sloppy, messy, and that it came out of a sloppy and messy mind, right? At the same time, we have to be careful of going too far in the other direction, being all anal and too tight and realizing that, you know, if you think about dew sparkling on a fresh bed of soil, if you look at a flower bed and the soil is covered in dew, that is also a very clean image. And yet, what could be more dirty than dirt? Right? <laughs> so sometimes we can go too far and get too tight, and that's not the aim of this either. Right? It's not about uh, creating kind of tight habit energy, but it's about treating the, the act of cleaning as a part of practice, loving it, doing it out of a love of a clean space. It's almost every human. It's just the same as like meditation or exercise as we spoke about earlier, right? When you're making space where it's hard and you don't want to do it and you make excuses, but then once you start doing it, it becomes wonderful. And every human, it's the same thing with cleaning. You don't want to clean and you resist it, but then once you get into cleaning mind and you surrender to cleaning and you really get into it, Everybody loves it, and everybody loves the result of it, 
of throwing away things. As you clean, you throw away things you don't need. You make space for new things to come in. You remove stagnant energy that's stuck and preventing you from growing. And so everybody, when you get in the habit of cleaning, you start to love it. Everybody that comes here, because we have so much cleaning here, they always it's always one of the highlights of their experience here, is cleaning. So cleaning is a beautiful practice. Physically cleaning is internally cleaning. But clean inside, clean outside. Chadao is 80% cleaning. Clean, clean your, your, purify your mind and purify the outside. Whenever the Buddha was pressed, um, people wanted to press him into some kind of philosophical stance so they could argue with him. And uh, he was like, look, this, the entirety of my teaching is this. Abstain from unhealthy activities, perform healthy activities, and purify your mind. Who can argue with that? It's impossible to argue with that. And you can't perform healthy activities and you can't abstain from unhealthy activities if you don't purify your mind. That's why meditation is so essential. You can't have that first one. You can't be upright. You can't behave skillfully if you can't tell the difference between your inner voice, your intuition, and your habits and your impulses. You can't behave skillfully if you don't have mastery over your mind. As it said in the, in the description there, the mind is an elephant that can create a city or destroy it. It's a power. And if it's not tamed, it will destroy. It will tyrannize you. You'll, you'll have the thought, I hate so-and-so, and you'll just be stuck in that thought, rolling in it, and it'll govern your behavior. Or lust, you'll be, I desire this thing, and you'll just be stuck in that desire with no space around it. And a mind without space isn't alive. It doesn't have freedom to move and grow and change. It requires space. So cleaning provides also on the physical what meditation provides for the spiritual, for the internal. They are both necessary. Clean, clean, clean. Keep your space clean, especially your tea space, especially your altar, especially your meditation space. But I, I would extend that to all of your life. Keep your life simple. Keep your possessions few. Don't just acknowledge freedom from material possessions, but learn to love freedom from material possessions. Why love it? Because material possessions are not really possessions. So when you love freedom from material possessions, you're loving the truth with a capital T because you don't possess anything. You don't even possess your own body. Everything you you own, you own only in a legal sense. You don't own in any absolute sense. It's not yours. It just passes through. So when you love freedom from material possessions, you're loving the truth. You're loving reality as it is. You're loving creation. And, uh, and it's uh, exhilarating to be free. So release possessions as you clean. And uh, keep your life simple. Keep your space simple. Western people are very poor at understanding the multifunctional power of space. When you fill space with a bunch of stuff and then you can only do certain activities in that space because it's got stuff in it, as opposed to just having empty space that can be used for many activities and the power that that brings. So, and, and even to the mind. What happens to your mind when you come into a clean, tastefully decorated, simple space? This is the, the power and, and learning to cultivate that taste, learning to cultivate that purity inside and outside. That's what this bowl is about. Mm -hmm. yeah, cleaning, like you said, it's a cycle. One creates the other. And to me, it's amazing to see how uh, on the physical level, when you clean, it also has an effect on your inside and vice versa as well. I do feel that we need to cultivate some resolve to keep our spaces empty so they could be functional for a lot of activities, like you said. There's so much stuff nowadays, and it's easy to get your room filled with it. 
Um, so we need to cultivate that resolve to, to have empty space so we can practice in that space. Yeah, this world's cluttered. You want to buy one thing and it has like accessories and they all come in packages and they all take up space. And so it's very easy for things to get cluttered. And uh, then that clutters the mind. And so if you want an empty, still mind, create a space of emptiness, at least one room in your house, your tea space, your meditation space. But uh, certainly practice meditation and practice cleaning. They, they go with each other, making space, sitting in the space, making space, sitting in the space, putting your teaware out, as it said, is such a joy. And then cleaning up afterwards and leaving this no trace of the session, making sure all the teaware is cleaned and cared for. There's you know a lot of antique teaware here in the center, and it's here because generations of Chajin cared for it, cleaned it, and took care of it, and that's why it's still in a good state. Uh, thank you. You've deepened my understanding on cleanliness and purity. Uh, this marks the halfway point, and we should take a break and come back to the, the rest of the bowls um, in the next episode. Thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be able to have this dialogue. I can't wait to talk about the final four as well. So excited to see you next time on the Life of Tea podcast. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you for listening. Hope to meet you again in the next episode of Life of Tea. If you like these podcasts and would like to support our cause, the best way to do so is to go to globalteahut.org and sign up for the monthly magazine that is ad-free and comes with beautiful, sustainably produced tea every month. The magazine covers all aspects of tea from the history and lore to the processing and brewing methods also the community aspect and the spiritual aspect as well if you're looking for more linear information on tea then perhaps go and check out our youtube channel that's also called global tea hut we just started a new series on brewing tea with a lot of good content coming your way